Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. Today we begin Jacob chapter 1. And with this chapter we have our first change of authors. It had been 55 years since Lehi left Jerusalem and Nephi was growing old. So he gave the plates that he was engraving to Jacob, his younger brother. We've already heard from Jacob. Nephi gave us one of Jacob's sermons in 2 Nephi chapter 6 through 10. But this is the first time we have Jacob as an author. Now, as you read Jacob, you'll notice that his writing style is different from Nephi's. Elder Neil A. Maxwell referred to him as the great poet-prophet. Give it a read and see what you think and let us know in the comments. And I apologize about my voice. I've got a bit of a cold. My, to be honest, my worry is that you'll like the voice better and then I'm going to have to figure out how to replicate it going forward after I get better. Anyway, we now have our trivia question from last time. Did Nephi have children? As I said last time, it's a simple question, but it leads to an interesting discussion. The short answer is yes, Nephi had children. When Lehi's group was crossing the ocean and Laman and the others tied up Nephi, Nephi says, quote, My wife and her tears and prayers and also my children did not soften the hearts of my brethren that they would loose me. Then later in 2 Nephi chapter 5, verse 14, Nephi said he made swords after the manner of the sword of Laban so they could protect themselves from the Lamanites. Quote, for I knew their hatred towards me and my children and those who were called my people. So Nephi definitely had children. A more interesting question, and one that we don't have the answer to, is whether he had any sons. Nephi's small plates, for the most part, were passed down from father to son, but Nephi gave them to his brother, Jacob. Jacob gave them to Enos, although whether Enos was his son or grandson, stay tuned. There's more to the story there. But Nephi did not pass the records to his son. Also, it appears that Nephi was not succeeded on the throne by his son either. Instead, and we'll touch on this today, it says, quote, he anointed a man to be a king and ruler over his people. If it was his son, it seems likely that he would have told us. And, and again, he gave his plates to his brother. So, so did Nephi have children? Yes. Did he have posterity? Yes. Did he have sons? If I had to guess, I'd say maybe no. Or maybe just not a son who lived to adulthood, or maybe not a son who was willing or able to be a king or a prophet. By the way, if you have any suggestions for a future trivia question, you can email it to me at uh, bomjourney at gmail.com. That would be much appreciated. Now we get back to the book of Jacob where Nephi gives the plates to his brother. Nephi instructed Jacob about the purpose of the small plates, including, as Nephi told readers previously, the need to keep two sets of records, the large plates, which were primarily a political record, and the small plates, which were for spiritual matters. Verse 4, And if there were preaching which was sacred, or revelation which was great, or prophesying, that I should engrave in the heads of them upon these plates and touch upon them as much as it were possible, for Christ's sake and for the sake of our people. For because of faith and great anxiety, 
it truly had been made manifest unto us concerning our people, what things should happen unto them. Because of faith and great anxiety, God had manifested unto Nephi and Jacob what should happen to the people. Ask yourself, how might you teach or parent your children differently if God let you know specifically, quote, what things should happen unto them? All right, continuing, Jacob and Nephi also knew of Christ's coming and both, quote, labored diligently to bring their people unto Christ. Here's verse 7. Wherefore, we labored diligently among our people that we might persuade them to come unto Christ and partake of the goodness of God, that they might enter into his rest, lest by any means he should swear in his wrath that they should not enter in, as in the provocation in the days of temptation while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. Sometime after Nephi gave the plates to Jacob, it says, quote, He began to be old, and he saw that he must soon die. And he anointed a man to reign in his stead. Nephi's people loved him so much that they wanted to keep his name alive. They always wanted to be governed by a Nephi. Thus, the name Nephi became synonymous with the title of king. Verse 11, Wherefore, the people were desirous to retain in remembrance his name. And whoso should reign in his stead were called by the people, second Nephi, third Nephi, and so forth, according to the reigns of the kings. And thus they were called by the people, let them be of whatever name they would. That was actually the answer to one of our trivia questions not too long ago. This is the only mention of kings being called Nephi in the Book of Mormon, or at least in the surviving part of the translation. It might have been discussed more in the large plates because those focused on political stuff, like the reigns of kings and so forth. During the reign of Nephi's successor, Jacob reported that the people began to grow hard in their hearts and indulge themselves somewhat in wicked practices, desiring many wives and concubines, and they also began to search much gold and silver and began to be lifted up somewhat in pride. Jacob was concerned by his people's actions. He and his brother Joseph had been tasked with teaching the people and knew they would be held accountable if they did not teach them the word of God with all diligence. Thus, Jacob, quote, first obtained his errand from the Lord, quote, and then taught the people in the temple. Jacob chapters 2 and 3 contain his message to his people. Now we move into Jacob 2. Jacob was concerned that his people were beginning to desire riches and also that they desired multiple wives and concubines. However, as he acknowledged in verse 4, they had yet to be disobedient to the instructions that he gave them. Here's verse 4. For behold, as yet, ye have been obedient unto the word of the Lord, which I have given unto you. Mentally, though, they were beginning to labor in sin. Jacob disliked talking about such a sensitive topic in the presence of families who had come to the temple hoping for an uplifting message, but that was his assignment. Here's verse 9. Wherefore, it burdeneth my soul that I should be constrained because of the strict commandment which I have received from God, to admonish you according to your crimes, to enlarge the wounds of those who are already wounded, instead of consoling and healing their wounds. And those who have not been wounded, instead of feasting upon the pleasing word of God, have daggers placed to pierce their souls and wound their delicate minds. You see what I mean by a poet-prophet, perhaps? Look at the language that he's using. Also, the word anxiety is used three times in the book of Jacob. It's hard to picture Nephi being anxious, so so Jacob was just put together differently. But returning to Jacob, he's got to speak to his people on some difficult topics. And 
I wonder whether the wives and families knew of the men's desire for multiple wives. If not, Jacob's concern that he would, quote, pierce their souls and wound their delicate minds was pretty understandable. But Jacob temporarily delayed that discussion because he knew it was going to be a more painful subject, and he began with a lesser problem. They lived in a land of abundance where providence had smiled upon them, as he says. But as happens, providence had not smiled equally upon everyone. Some had been more materially blessed than others and interpreted this greater prosperity is a sign that they were somehow better or somehow had God's approval more than the less fortunate. We can sometimes find a similar self-congratulatory response or feeling among modern church members. But God does not see it this way. Look at verse 14. And now, my brethren, do you suppose that God justifieth you in this thing? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, but he condemneth you. And if ye persist in these things, his judgments must speedily come unto you. Oh, that he would show unto you that he can pierce you, and with one glance of his eye he can smite you to the dust. So Jacob gave the following guidance in verse 17. Think of your brethren like unto yourselves, and be familiar with all, and free with your substance, that they may be rich like unto you. So how free should you be with your substance? The goal, Jacob said, is for the recipient, quote, to be rich like unto you. Now that can mean a lot of different things. Is he saying that everybody has to have equal results, or if, or if you're 40 years into a career, does that mean that the new guy's starting out and you should have the same things, or is this even about things? There's a lot to think about in these verses. The other question is whether that applies worldwide. Do you have to keep giving until all 8 billion people on the planet are rich like unto you? It's hard to say. He was talking to a relatively small group in the temple. So once again, there's a lot to think about in these verses. So he spent a few more verses clarifying the intent. He, he explained that God loved all his children and wanted them to be blessed, fed, clothed, and free from servitude. If we have the means to help others and aren't doing so, how can we feel that we're more blessed or more spiritual than they are? So Jacob then changed topics. If greed and pride had been their only problems, he said, he would have rejoiced at how well they were doing. But this was not the case. God had revealed to Jacob that his people had grosser crimes than pride. They desired to commit whoredoms and thought that having multiple wives, as had David and Solomon, might allow them to achieve this end righteously. They hadn't yet started having multiple wives, but they wanted to. And the fact that Jacob addressed the, the matter in a public sermon implies, to me anyway, that his subjects might have been debating the topic publicly or maybe even in church discussions, but I don't know. So Jacob clarified that they should have only one wife and no concubines. God delighted in the chastity of women and whoredoms were an abomination to him. They needed to keep his commandments or the land would be cursed. In Jacob 1.15, God described his people as, quote, indulging themselves somewhat in wicked practices like unto David of old, desiring many wives and concubines. In that verse, in my opinion, God is not condemning plural marriage as much as the desire to be unfaithful to your spouse. The sin of David's that he refers to there is desiring many wives and concubines. So, in my opinion, God is not condemning plural marriage there as much as the desire to be unfaithful to your spouse. 
Jacob's subjects had adulterous desires and they saw plural marriage as a loophole that could satisfy their desire to have you know, some additional partners. Jacob explained that God might sometimes command plural marriage to increase the population, but this is not the same as using plural marriage as an outlet for wanting to cheat on your spouse. Verse 30, For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. So a quick word about boosting the population. What's strange to me is that Jacob, who was obviously still alive, had been on Lehi's original boat out of Jerusalem, and his people had already been at war with the Lamanites. So if a population ever needed help growing, this would probably be it, right? But the fact that the Lord did not feel the need to raise up seed implies that maybe they were not struggling to sufficiently grow the, the population. We generally think that the Nephites found the Americas to be empty of people when they arrived, but there's a lot of hints that they joined people who are already here or were joined by others who came later. And we talked about that at length in Second uh, Nephi chapter 1, if you want to go back and look at that one. Jacob addressed the growing Nephite population a little bit later in Jacob 3.12, after this sermon is over, when he says, And a hundredth part of the proceedings of this people, which now began to be numerous, cannot be written upon these plates. Returning to Jacob's sermon, he ended chapter 2 by telling his listeners that they were worse than the Lamanites because they had broken the hearts of their wives and their children. Now we move to Jacob 3. So in Jacob 3, while still preaching, Jacob encouraged those who were pure in heart to feast upon the word of God. Then he turned his attention to, quote, those that were not pure in heart. The Nephites considered themselves superior to the Lamanites, which might have been easy if the description of them in, in 2 Nephi chapter 5 was accurate. Here's 2 Nephi 5, 24. And because of their cursing, which was upon them, they did become an idle people, full of mischief and subtlety, and did seek in the wilderness for beasts of prey. But despite this, Jacob told his people that the Lamanites, quote, are more righteous than you. Their families love each other. Lamanite husbands love their wives and children and don't try to have concubines or multiple wives. And unless the Nephites repent, the Lamanites, who some Nephites despise because of their dark skin, will have whiter skin than the Nephites at the judgment bar of God. The Book of Mormon often comes under fire for that, for that verse or when it talks about light skin, dark skin, etc. Um, there's an, I'm not going to go into it, but there's a, an interesting article that talks about that, that gives an alternate interpretation. Were they really talking about, you know, the amount of melanin that these people have in their skin, or was there, or was there something else going on? I'll put the article in the show notes. It's, I'm not endorsing it. I'm just saying it gives an interesting alternative uh, viewpoint on the topic. Jacob said that although he told his people many things, he did not have room to write all his teachings on the plates, nor could he even write a hundredth part of the proceedings of his people, but that a more complete record was kept on the larger plates. Jacob ended the chapter by saying, These plates are called the plates of Jacob, and they were made by the hands of Nephi. So why did Jacob insert that line into the middle of his writings? Several prophets wrote these snippets, and they're called colophones. I think that's how you pronounce it. Colophon, colophone. And a colophone is defined as a brief statement containing information about the publication of a book, but they're usually at the beginning or at the ending. 
and now that you know the term, you'll see them scattered throughout the Book of Mormon. Anyway, maybe Jacob thought he was done writing after he had written that sermon, and so he was putting that by way of closing remark. But fortunately for us, he wasn't done yet. We move into chapter 4. Jacob continued discussing the plates. Although engraving words into metal was challenging and anything written was permanent, Nephi and Jacob loved the idea of being able to transmit information to descendants, brethren, and other relatives. In this era, the ability to send messages to future generations must have been a very rare thing and seen as miraculous or a great blessing. The message Jacob wished to convey to his posterity, though, was that he knew about Christ hundreds of years before he came. Verse 4, For for this intent have we written these things, that they may know that we knew of Christ and had a hope of his glory many hundred years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. However, he explains, notwithstanding their knowledge of the Savior, they kept the law of Moses, quote, it pointing their souls to him. Jacob talked about what they were able to accomplish through the Savior and how they were able to achieve it. Here's verse 6. Wherefore, we search the prophets, that is, we read the scriptures, and we have many revelations in the spirit of prophecy, and having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken, insomuch that we truly can command the name of Jesus, and the very trees obey us, or the mountains, or the waves of the sea. But then, in verse 7, Jacob says something that I found surprising. After describing having God's power, having enough faith to command the wind and the waves, describing people who are clearly playing their spiritual A-game, he says this, verse 7, Nevertheless, the Lord showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by his grace and his condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. He says that God shows them their weakness. And he doesn't mean lack of physical ability. Christ taught a similar principle to Moroni in Ether chapter 12, verse 27, when he said, And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. And he did it to make them humble. Now think about that. Even those with enough faith to command the elements will behold their weakness and feel unworthy. Seriously, no matter how well you're doing, you'll feel that it's not enough. In fact, if if we believe the two verses that we just quoted, the closer you draw to God, the more acutely aware you are of your shortcomings and your fallen nature. Jacob 4.7 says that he shows us our weakness so that we'll know that when we work miracles, it's not because we've earned it, but it's because of God's grace. Ether 12.27 tells us that God gives us weakness to make us humble so that through his grace we can become strong. And this notion of the closer we draw to God, the more acutely aware we are of our shortcomings is on display in 2 Nephi 4, which we covered several episodes ago. Nephi, Nephi who was incredibly valiant, he spent half a chapter lamenting his fallen nature and, and sinful tendencies. He was drawing close to God, which made him very aware of his weakness, in my opinion. I bring all this up because people don't recognize that feeling unworthy and feeling inadequate and feeling remorse, that's part of the gospel path. Alma 42 verse 24 tells us that none but the truly penitent are saved. Penitent means feeling bad or guilty for having done something wrong. 
And obviously, there's a rather wide spectrum of things that someone can do wrong, and we're all somewhere on that spectrum, meaning we all fall short of expectations. We all fall short of the example of the person that we're trying to emulate. But again, it's important to recognize that the point of guilt and these feelings of unworthiness and remorse and penitence isn't to make you give up. It's to make you humble enough to ask for Christ's help and to depend on his grace. Okay, in verse 11, Jacob revisited the theme of reconciliation that he introduced to us in 2 Nephi 10, 24. Here's verse 11. Wherefore, beloved brethren, be reconciled unto him through the atonement of Christ, his only begotten Son, that ye may obtain a resurrection according to the power of the resurrection which is in Christ, and be presented as the first fruits of Christ unto God, having faith and having obtained a good hope of glory in him before he manifesteth himself in the flesh. These teachings of Jacob may seem ordinary to us now, but such straightforward teachings about Christ were radical to his audience at the time. It makes me wonder whether, in addition to avoiding the use of God's name, they avoided talking about him altogether, maybe. Jacob told them not to marvel or be amazed at his speaking plainly of Christ because, he asked, why shouldn't someone speak plainly of Christ? Why not speak of things as they really are? The people at Jerusalem, he said, despised plainness, slew the prophets, and sought for things that they could not understand. And because of their blindness, which blindness came from, quote, seeking beyond the mark, they necessarily fell. And that's all we have time for today. Next time our discussion is going to include Jacob chapter 5, which because it has 77 verses, is the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon. And that leads us to today's trivia question. Originally, the Book of Mormon had longer chapters than it does now. Then, in 1879, Orson Pratt divided the original Book of Mormon into smaller chapters with numbered verses, the same verses that we have today. So here's the question. Which was the longest chapter in the original Book of Mormon? Was it Jacob 5? Or was it something else? This one took me a little digging to find, so if you know it offhand, I'll be impressed. Leave your answer in the comments. Also, again, if you have any suggestions for future trivia questions, let me know. So what was the longest chapter in the original Book of Mormon? Until next time.